0: Hello, and welcome back to the Historian's Magazine podcast. My name is Chris, and today I'm joined by historian and author, Catherine Pangonis, who specializes in medieval Middle East and the Mediterranean. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing?
1: I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Looking forward to this conversation.
0: Absolutely. Me too. So today we are talking about Queens of Jerusalem, which as well as being the title of your truly fantastic book. It's also the topic of the article you've written for the latest edition of the Historians magazine. So to just get us started, can you give us a bit of a background as to where we are and who do we mean specifically when we say Queens of Jerusalem?
1: Thanks, Chris. Yeah, that's a great question to just sort of give us some background and get us into it. So. Queens of Jerusalem is about women rulers in the Crusader states. In fact, that would have been a more accurate title for the book than Queens of Jerusalem, but my publishers assured me that Queens of Jerusalem was catchier. The book takes in, of course, Queens of Jerusalem, but also princesses of Antioch and countesses of Edessa and Tripoli. Together, the Kingdom of Jerusalem, the Principality of Antioch, and the counties of Tripoli and Edessa make up the four Crusader states that made up the area known as Outremer in the Middle Ages which was the area of land that roughly goes from Southern Turkey to Northern Egypt, taking in Palestine, Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Southern Turkey, and Northern Egypt. And were the lands conquered by European crusaders during the first crusade and just afterwards, and out of which they carved this territory, which they essentially colonized and held as Christian lands in the East. Um, yeah, so the book Queens of Jerusalem essentially deals with the noble women who managed to bring themselves to positions of power in this region during the roughly the 12th century, and also compares them to their Islamic counterparts reigning in Damascus and Mosul and Aleppo at this time.
0: What, so this might be a, a silly question, but why do you think it was important that it, you needed to write this book? Obviously, I'm, I'm very biased. I really enjoyed your book. Um, yes. But why? <laughs> no problem. Um, why do you think it was important to, to kind of give the world this book?
1: Well, I think the thing is, is that I I did the Crusades at A-level as part of my history course. And I came across these women. And at the time, you know, I asked that I came across two women as part of the A-level history syllabus, Queen Melisande of Jerusalem, who's a very powerful woman, who I'm sure we'll talk more about later in this conversation, and also Princess Alice of Antioch, who is just one of these really fiery personalities that really jumps off the page. But we sort of came across them in passing. We didn't do... Any in depth studies on them. And I remember at the time, you know, asking my history teacher, Oh, I'm really interested in these women. Can we do more on them? Are there any books I can read? And he was like, Well, you know, there aren't really any books. You can sort of look at these pages in t- chapter 12 of Runciman's book, La La La. Or there's this really good academic essay by this guy called Hans Eberhard Meyer, who did a really cool book about, uh, not a cool book, a really cool, like, extended essay on Queen Melisande and her kingdom. Um, but there wasn't really anything that was sort of accessible and focused on women rulers and you know at the time I was 17 and I was like oh that's a shame but then you know I, I came back to the crusades in my master's studies and once again I looked for a book just sort of assuming one had been written in that sort of inter- intervening uh, five years or whatever but it hadn't and I just thought you know this is something that's so obviously missing from the popular literature around the crusades this is a real gap Um, And I'm, you know, now having just finished this Masters in Medieval History, I'm now in a good position to try to fill it. And it's a great way in for me to write about this period and region from a fresh perspective and through this sort of semi-feminist lens. So it was it was an exciting opportunity for me. And I really thought it was important to shine a light on the lives and the contributions of these women in this very volatile period and region, because they they really made a huge difference to, to the way history unfolded. During this quite crucial point in sort of med, uh, medieval European and you know Western Asian history so yeah
0: yeah and that, it's definitely you know I'm, I'm probably gonna keep saying it but it, it is a great book I really did enjoy reading it and I think it's it is a very it can be quite a difficult topic can't it the Crusades and, and the Near East and you've got three major religions essentially fighting over the same spot for hundreds of years if not even longer than that and in from an educational point of view we kind of boil it down to christian soldiers going over taking jerusalem losing jerusalem gaining jerusalem losing it again and then we kind of just forget about crusades and we move on to the new world but in that kind of in that that few few century period so much happens doesn't it and um the, the, the two women you choose to focus on specifically in the article you've written for us are um, remarkable women on their own. Obviously I'm a massive fan of Eleanor of Aquitaine and she features in your book and, and throughout the throughout your work as her part during the second crusade. But what were the kind of main problems that they were facing, maybe specifically as women, if you want to go as deep into it as that, but what were the things that they were facing that, contributed to this kind of very like you said volatile period of history
1: well i mean that's 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 a very multifaceted question i mean you know i mean the most pressing threats that they were dealing with were existential ones to the the territories that they were governing i mean you know they were ruling frontier states that were constantly under existential threat from enemies at the borders so you know no islamic warlord king emir in the middle east accepted the creation of the crusader states, this wasn't like, you know, this was contested grounds that were constantly being trying to be taken back. So obviously, that's the main threat. But, you know, certainly superficially, and that is that, that, as you say, they boil down to Christian versus Muslims. And that is significant. I mean, it's not as straightforward as Christians versus Muslims, but that sense of, you know, war um, was continuous. That said, you know, there are all these far more complex and subtle difficulties going on beneath the surface. There's, internal politics at the court of Jerusalem, the court of Antioch, people vying for control within the Crusader states. And it's ultimately this disunity from within that plays a huge role in leading to the downfall of Christian states in the Near East. Um, and, you know, beyond this, as you say, the problems they faced as women, it was a tough life. I mean, these women, they were married off young, you know, questions of rape come into it, you know, all you know, obviously, you know, many of them will have traumatic relationships, being married off at the age of nine, of 11, of 14 to much older men and on top of that you know they're bearing children in their teens and they're they're having children and pregnancies successful and not throughout their lives and then their children are dying often you know and because it's a highly it's a highly hostile environment in many ways you know we don't have modern medicine there's the threat of warfare there's disease one of the kings of jerusalem dies of leprosy many die and you know the baldwin the fifth dies in childhoods you know bet you know before he becomes an adult all these things so there are all these threats to women and on top of that you have this pervasive issue of misogyny and sexism these are slightly anachronistic terms that we shouldn't apply to the middle ages directly because it's just a different moral framework and different understanding of what gender roles all these things are but ultimately women are considered to be fundamentally different and capable of fundamentally different things to men. And so women trying to you know, wield power in a typically masculine role or setting is going to be met with constant barriers, objections, refusals, this sort of thing. So the women not only, yes, I mean, yes, they inherit authority in several cases through being a royal-born princess, for example, but the real struggle that women have in this period that men do not necessarily have is converting their authority into actual power having their authority recognized and accepted and then actually converting that authority into real power and managing to get things done make people follow their commands and take them seriously as rulers and that's a major challenge for women women in this period
0: yeah and i think there's, there's definitely parallels to say empress matilda back in england um a few kind of decades before um
1: no, it's sort of a direct parallel, actually. She's a direct contemporary of, um,
0: of yeah. the Jerusalem. Yes, you're right, yeah. I'm a century out in my head. I'm terrible when it comes to you're dates, surprisingly, as a historian. Um, but yeah, you can see a clear parallel because she is the only legitimate heir to a kingdom, or whatever title, generally, and yet there is a 19-year-long civil war based almost exclusively on the fact that she was a woman. Um, one question I did really want to ask you is: obviously, the, the theme and the point of your book is female rulers in the Crusader states. Is this something that is more widespread than we probably understand, or do you think this is a symptom of the situation? There seems to be a theme of um, male relatives dying young, not being enough sons and brothers and things like that. Is this a, a specific Crusader state? thing or is this something that we see wider in in europe and the near east
1: i mean it it's exacerbated by the volatility of the near east but this sort of thing can happen anywhere i mean male female genetics whether children are born male or female is entirely down to sort of luck of the draw sort of thing and so you know anywhere a king can be given daughters rather than sons at any point and that can threaten smooth succession as you've drawn a very good example of Matilda in England and there are others um but in the Crusader states it's exacerbated because the life expectancy for a native-born king in Outremer is sort of early 20s whereas life expectancy for a native-born king in France and England is sort of late 50s early 60s so the men even went so the point is that even when sons are born in the Near East they 're just dying much younger due to increased military risk and risk of disease, so this exacerbates it, but you know the, the fundamental root of the problem and or the problem or the opportunity if you prefer is that Baldwin the Second of Jerusalem had four daughters and no sons, and this is what really sets up this dynasty of women rulers in the middle east and then as mentioned, you know Baldwin the dies of leprosy, Baldwin the fifth dies as a child, so it is these deaths and this this um this this large birth rate of female children that really makes it bigger there. But you know we have examples of women coming into positions of power across the world and across different time periods. I mean I've focused on the Crusades, and at the same time you have Iraka in Spain, you have Matilda in England. Then okay. in Egypt, in, then in Egypt about a century later, you have a woman called Shah Al dur becoming the essentially the female Sultan of Egypt. So we do we do encounter women being able to manoeuvre themselves to positions of power in different periods in regions in Europe, in um, in the Near East we have it, we have it occurring. You know, we also have Tamar the Great at a similar time, but it is exacerbated at this time in the Near East by the volatility of of the political situation in the region.
0: Yeah, because it's always struck me as when I've been reading about. About obviously this is this is my period of history as well, so I read about it a lot, and it always seems to come back to this this seemingly odd idea of female rule. But I guess when you just scratch below the surface, it's pretty much always there throughout. Um, but yeah, the idea, and, and you mentioned it in the article about converting authority into power, seems to be the one roadblock that constantly catches these incredibly able and politically astute women from um, really cementing their, their place at times, but you, one of the people that you, you talk a lot about is Sibylla is of Jerusalem, who I find, again, incredibly interesting. One thing that I want to just quickly ask you, and if that's okay, is about her relationship with her husband, um, mm-hmm. Gidea Lusignan, who you know it's famously shown, I think quite incorrectly, in Kingdom of Heaven, but um, her I don't want to call it on off because it's not but it technically is on off on relationship with her husband She famously declares um, declares him king when nobody wants her to but we yeah how, how would you how would you describe her relationship with, with with her husband and and what that meant for her as queen of Jerusalem because I think it had quite a negative effect on her rulership.
1: It's really hard to say, you know, that's certainly the the tack I've taken in my book, Queens of Jerusalem. Um, and that's certainly one very valid interpretation, because if you sort of if you look at everything and take it at face value, it seems that Sibylla is very much in love with her husband um, and prioritises the relationship and his life and indeed him and his ego and his wishes over her, perhaps maybe over her better judgment and perhaps over the needs of the kingdom at times. Um, Because yes, famously she is offered the crown of Jerusalem on the condition that she divorces him. So she agrees to divorce him, but then on the condition that she can select her next husband from, you know, any of the nobles in the kingdom of Jerusalem. They're like, yes, yes, anyone is better than him. And then she gets crowned and she's like, ha ha, I choose him again. He's a noble in the kingdom of Jerusalem. I'm allowed to choose him, ha ha. Um and you know, you know, for uh, you know, face value, you'd only do that if you really wanted to be married to this guy. And you know, also Sabilla is the daughter of a pretty um a pretty disastrously failed marriage. Her this famously Sybilla's father, um whatever his name was famously Sibylla's father Amalric of Jerusalem was given the same option you know he was said we'll make you king of Jerusalem provided you divorce your wife Agnes of Courtney and he's like yeah yeah sure and divorces Agnes of Courtney and she's sent away and so Sibylla is separated from her mother at a young age and what we have to remember is that Spiller is still a young woman when she becomes queen of Jerusalem. she has been through this potentially traumatic childhood of having her mother sent away. She's sent away to be raised by nuns, separated from her young brother. She's then forced to marry a knight older than her when she's still in her teens. He dies, leaving her pregnant. She has a child. Then she you know, ostensibly seems to fall in love and marries Guy de Lusignan. And then she's told she has to divorce him when perhaps he's like this figure of stability in her life. She perhaps really loves him. So yeah, so on the surface, it certainly looks as though she wants to keep him in her life for personal reasons. There's nothing to suggest that Guy de Lusignan is a really strong, great candidate for kingship, but Sibylla wants him in her life. And then, you know, as far as we can see, she sticks to him like glue. You know, she she gives up the fortress of Ascalon, if I remember rightly, to try and secure his freedom um, from when he's captured by Saladin. When he is released she goes to be with him and she dies beside him at the Siege of Acre. You know, so it does seem that she sort of devotes she every choice she has where she can choose to be with Gee and to support Guy, she chooses to do just that. So based on all of those things, it looks like she very much loves the guy. Um in Kingdom of Heaven it's portrayed very differently. It's portrayed that she wants rid of him, you know, and it's and Kingdom of Heaven's an interesting film, I mean I don't hate it as much as most historians do because there's a lot that's inaccurate and there's a lot that's very culturally insensitive. You know, they don't depict Muslim prayer in a good way. There's a lot about Muslim-Christian relations. They just get completely wrong. There's a lot about Islam and, you know, Islamic culture. They just get wrong. And there isn't really any excuse for that. They could have budgeted differently and had proper advisors to help them with this. But in terms of the story of the intrigue at the heart of it and Sibylla's relationship with these men, I think it's pretty inaccurate for Sibylla But what's quite interesting is what they've done is, in my opinion, they've taken the much more interesting storyline of Queen Melizond from two generations before, Sybilla's grandmother, and they've moved Melizond's storyline, which had this very interesting love triangle in it and this sort of hatred of the husband, and they've moved that storyline down two generations and given it to Sybilla. So I actually find the film quite interesting from that perspective, because you sort of get a glimpse of Melazon's story as though it's Sibylla's. And while of course that's historically inaccurate, you can sort of see from an artistic position why they've done that. Um, Because they brought, you know, Melazon's relationships are so much more interesting than Sibylla's, but Sibylla is ruling at this hyper interesting time, the fall of Jerusalem. So to put them together, that sort of makes sense if you're just gonna make one film anyway. um, But yeah, I think, you know, in terms of Sibylla's relationship with Guy, Guy, and its effect on her reign, it looks like it clouded her judgment, to be honest. Um, he wasn't a great leader he achieved nothing that marked him out as a particularly strong leader for Jerusalem and he was a highly divisive figure the local baronage really weren't fans of his and so Sibylla, you know investing so much in that relationship and not being willing to give it up potentially very destabilizing Um, but other than that yeah I mean it was her relationship it was her life.
0: Yeah fair point and nice nicely kind of summarized as well I mean Kingdom of Heaven is is one of my favorite films, not because of its accuracies or anything like that. I just think it's 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 a good film. It shows a lot of um, medieval warfare at its worst, but um, yeah, I'm always interested in in people's opinions on how people are dis- like portrayed in film. But I didn't actually put two and two together, and like you said, they've kind of got the, the um, Melisande and, and Sybilla mixed up and basically mm-hmm. swapped them for ease of time period. Because see, you've got Saladin you know, the fall of Jerusalem in 1187. So there's this big climactic moment that you can literally stick at the end of the film. I guess it makes sense. Hopefully I haven't spoiled the film for anybody, but it's been like 20 years. So get over it if you haven't seen it, but yeah. My
1: my view on this is, you know, I don't really care how much artistic license filmmakers take when they depict the Middle Ages, as long as it's not deeply culturally insensitive, which Mm. our kingdom of heaven is. So that's the big problem there. But, you know, in general, films that depict you know films that glamorize the middle ages um films that make people interested that capture the atmosphere i do have a lot of time for them even if they're historically inaccurate in terms of chronology and events because it does get people interested in the period and you know if you really want to learn about the middle ages you don't go to a hollywood blockbuster for that you know so if a hollywood blockbuster film can get you interested you can then go and read the books which hopefully have been written with a good level of rigor and you know you know fact-checking research and such so yeah i mean i from my perspective it's fine to take artistic license
0: yeah just do it in the uh, in the in the, the best way humanly possible yeah no i, I couldn't agree more
1: yeah, couldn't agree I more the problem with kingdom of heaven is it's just so western centric you know and i think um and that is a problem you know it doesn't matter if you change the chronology if you make a character bad or good but i think if you just spend so much time getting you know, it's very orientalist in many respects how it depicts the like Sibylla even is very sexualized very orientalized and likewise I mean their depiction of Saladin is in, is interesting you know they try to portray him as a fair man and such but you know the film is is lacking from a cultural sensitivity perspective I think but the chronology thing I have no beef with it's it's fun the plot <laughs> is fine
0: <laughs> yeah we definitely need uh, we definitely need more on on the, on the topic because like you said it's a great way to get people. Into history, I mean, it's probably the the most common way people, especially these days, get into historical periods is they watch a TV show or a film or whatever it is, you know, and it, and it's it's a it's a it's a nice little gateway in. But you're right, it has to be because if you watch, and we're going off on a massive tangent here, but if you watch um, the Robin Hood film with with Russell Crowe in it, and you think, cool, that is the definitive kind of documentary on, you know. 12th century England then you, you you're going to be disappointed when you read anything watch anything else or, or anything like that so um yeah it's definitely got its uh, got its time and its place hasn't it
1: yeah indeed indeed I haven't seen the Russell Crowe Robin Hood but I'm a massive long-term fan of the Kevin Costner one so <laughs>
0: I'll stick to Kevin he he is, for all its issues trust me it's um it's definitely definitely the better of the two but uh but yeah, that is, um, I'd probably say a lovely way to kind of end the general conversation on that. Uh, it comes to the point in the, in the show where we kind of ask everybody the same questions or at least similar questions. Um, so I'll start off with the, with the first one, which is if you could go back in time to any period, any event, if you could watch one thing happen, what would it be and, and why?
1: I mean, I I don't have a clear answer to this, but, you know, I I probably, I would want to go and see sort of the crusader states in Outremer sort of at their cultural high points. You know, I'd like to go at a time when, you know, I'd like to walk through the streets of Tyre or of Antioch at a time when there's this amazing cultural blend in the streets, um, when they're real trading multicultural hubs. And I'd like to see, you know, this fused Arabic, Syriac, Armenian, French architecture and hear that babel of languages in the streets and just and really see what what the atmosphere was like at that time in this region I live in Lebanon now actually Um, so you still have a lot of the cultural collision um, and you still have obviously the huge influences of French colonialism and crusader heritage and also obviously of local Islamic culture and you know early Christianity and this sort of thing but I'd love to see it in the middle ages for sure
0: yeah, I totally agree. I would definitely want to do that as well. Uh, and final question is, if you could bring anyone through history through to today, or even if it's just a case of sitting down and having a conversation with someone, who would you just like to speak to? Who would you like to like, is there question do you want answering about anyone or?
1: Um, well, I am mean, I'm pretty, I mean, it's such a broad question. There are so many, I think, but because we're sort of in a sort of Crusades Near mindset, I've got two answers. Um, and I'd love to meet Saladin, Saladin um, provided there was a pr- appropriate translators on hand. Uh, and also Eleanor of Aquitaine. I'd love to meet her and I'd love to really get to the bottom of what happened between her and her uncle at Antioch. So...
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that's a book in itself, isn't it? Um, I'm, a, I'm a staunch believer that she definitely did not have an affair with her uncle. But, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely worth a conversation, isn't it? <laughs>
1: But of course, she might not tell you. So maybe it would be a waste. True. Wish.
0: Nah, she's definitely top of my list to go and uh, to go and speak to. But uh, yeah, e- even if she doesn't give me a straight answer, it's still. I mean, like you said, you'd need a translator. So uh, that would I would have to take somebody with me or or get somebody to speak middle French mm. as well. So just to kind of wrap up, um, as always, uh, I give you the floor for as long or as little as you want to share any of your social media handles, any upcoming projects you've got, or anything you want to share, I will mute my mic and you can go for as long or as short as you want.
1: Thanks. Um, it's pretty short. Basically, I have a new book coming out on July 6th in the UK called Twilight Cities, Lost Capitals of the Mediterranean. Um, and in it, you know, I look at I look at five of the most important but often overlooked cities in Mediterranean, at least in history, two of which are Tyre and Antioch, which I sort of came across as case studies while researching Queens of Jerusalem. So I take both of these cities from their origins in sort of just immediately following the death of Alexander the Great and immediate and in the sort of Phoenician times, Bronze Age, Mediterranean, and follow them both through to their modern day counterpart, their modern day afterlives, if you like. Um, Tyre is a modern city on the Lebanese coast near the closed border with Israel. Um, not that it's a border near the blue line. Um, and Antioch, I talk about right up to the recent earthquakes actually, which are devastating. Um, so yeah, uh, please buy that book and yeah, thanks for having me.
0: No worries at all. And yeah, I can absolutely guarantee that that book will be just as good as Queens of Jerusalem. But to read more about the Queens of Jerusalem... Um, please check out Catherine's article in edition 13 of the Historian's Magazine. And as always, make sure to sign up to our newsletter to keep up to date with everything history from around the UK and beyond. Catherine, thank you so much again for taking time to come on the podcast.
1: Thanks, Chris.